when it is cut down, that it will sprout again, and its roots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground, and its stump dies in the dry soil. At the sin of water it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. But man dies and lies prostrate. Man expires and where is he? As water evaporates from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, so man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. He will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. Moreover, man does not know his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net, and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of man are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Readings from the book of Ecclesiastes, in which Solomon pictures time and chance and death as happening to all and there is this desperate need for certainty There's a, the, that we would grasp for some unchanging, some certain reality in the face of death. But the question arises as to what kind of certainty? What do we mean by that? And I'm going to suggest today there are two kinds of certainty and we need to distinguish them. We need to understand the nature of the certainty that we, in fact, I think, mistakenly look for and that certainty that has been given to us in Christ. And thematic here throughout, and it's sort of the context in which all of this is being pictured, is that since we die, you know, this is the picture in Ecclesiastes, that our tendency will be, in fact, to find a certainty that is disembodied, that in some way is an escape, that in some way surpasses, you know, the mortal condition by disembodiment. And the answer that we come to is the embodied certainty that we have in Christ and the church. You know, the saying is, there's nothing certain except death and taxes. And the idea is, these are the unchanging realities that we can count on, but that's not very helpful, is it? Uh, I think we can read, in fact, all of human history as a kind of quest for certainty. Certainty in religion or national identity. This is, you know, the Tower of Babel. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they use brick for stone and they use tar for mortar. That sounds pretty certain, doesn't it? They said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. There is a certainty. We can uh, storm the gates of heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. We're going to establish ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They would make an unchanging name, a sure foundation. They would establish themselves. They would hold themselves together in the face we see in chapter 12, in fact, in the face of death. They would be scattered. Uh, But the thing that they attach themselves to, which is going to hold them together, is that tower. 
And the tower is itself, of course, a dead, unmoving object. Every grab, I believe, for identity and certainty, whether it's in tribalism, nationalism, or some uh, attempt to storm the heavens, uh, or even a religious identity that we fabricate, in the end, the meaning is as empty as this tower and is un- as uncertain as this tower. This, of course, is the, the philosophical quest, is really a quest for certainty. That the Greek notion is that if we could reach some unchanging reality, the forms, uh, that there would be certainty. Or if we could come to the unmoved mover, God himself. And what does you know? what is the characteristic of this unmoved mover? Well, he can only think of unchanging things. What's the one unchanging thing? Himself. What does he think about? Himself. The unmoved mover is, I think, the great narcissist of the sky. And again, this unchanging God resembles death as much as anything else. So to find that which is certain or unchanging in this sense is to always make a departure from the reality, the embodied reality of this world. Nothing in this world, including the human condition, the human body, is certain. This is, of course, the quest in a kind of rational or scientific quest for certainty. Rene Descartes, who is really the modernist uh, father of uh, both science and philosophy, all of his life he feared death. And he thought that in his quest for finding a scientific uh, you know, truth, that he was actually going to cure death itself. Um, and he, in his formula, you know, the cogito, I think, therefore I am, it's actually a kind of quest on the order of a, a, a philosophical quest. If you know the, the story, he goes into the warm room and there's a clock in the room. It's kind of representative of his whole point that certainty is to be found in math. Certainty is to be found in some unchanging realm of thought. And he's assured that the soul and the body are entirely distinct. That is, the rational soul in some way is distinct from the body. And that the true essence resides in the soul in thought. And so it is a completely independent of the world outside. It's the ghost in the machine kind of understanding. I don't know if you remember the movie Men in Black. You remember the, the scene where the, the, uh, they come in, the two Jewish jewelers are in there and they're talking and then the guy shoots them and their heads pop open and there's a little green man in there running the machine. That's sort of the way that Descartes pictures the soul's relationship to the body. His story is sort of interesting because he, he later becomes um, tutor to the Queen of Sweden. Descartes used to spend his days lounging in bed, a man after my own heart, you know, uh, that he would sleep until 10 and, and then he would work in bed. And uh, he always said it was because of his ill health, you know, that he really couldn't get up early. And then he began to work for the Queen of Sweden and she made him come for her tutorials at 5 a.m. And they say it killed him uh, because she lived in this big drafty castle and it was cold and 
uh, he was only there a matter of a few a few months, and then only given her, a, you know, only a, a few lessons, and he, he caught pneumonia and died. Scholastic quest for uncertainty. You know, this goes back to Anselm of Canterbury. Who's God? He pictures God like the the Greeks did. God is the greatest thought. What is the greatest thought? The greatest thought is that thought which, you know, nothing greater can be thought. What's the greatest thought that can be thought? It cannot be thought not to exist or you're not thinking the greatest thought. Therefore, God must be thought to exist to think the greatest thought. I know I'm confusing you here. This is Anselm. He's giving us this formula in which we would arrive at the greatest thought, and he literally thinks this is to enter into the certainty. He'll call it, almost in the language of Moses, of having seen God in and through his thinking. So in philosophy, it's the attempt to in some way transcend the body by constructing these grand theories. We could go through anthropology and psychology. There is always this sense of a denial of an embodied nature, of an embodied soul. Even in the study of language, the denial of the bodily meaning and nature of meaning. In epistemology, the separation of the mind from the world. In modern philosophy, from Descartes to Kant. The self, the human self, the soul, is in a separate realm. And it begins as the disembodied ego. And, you know, whether it becomes either the dismantled self of Hume or the transcendental I. You know, the the I that in some way is above and beyond the I. The body. Richard Rorty has called it an obsession with this image of something deeply hidden. The attempt to find, to avoid relatedness, to take a single thought, which is not simply a node in a web of other thoughts, to speak a word which has meaning, even though it has no place in social practice. Scripture pictures the quest for certainty as in fact a flight from death and the attempt to storm the heavens. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along. And the caperberry is ineffective. And of course, the image, this is poetic imagery. For one who has grown old, he's afraid even to walk on the road. He's, his hair is gray like the almond tree blossoms. He looks like a grasshopper with his bones sticking out and dragging himself along. And there is no cure. The capaberry is a kind of, you know, the idea of regenerating your life's desires. Man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered. And the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. The golden cord may be the spinal cord. 
the golden bowl, the skull, the pitcher at the well, perhaps the heart. And these things are going to give out. They're going to fail you. If we entrust ourselves then, uh, to, if we're searching for certainty, the idea is that in some way uh, we'll have to flee from our embodiment and take flight to the heavens. The way that Isaiah has pictured it is that our tendency is to enter into a covenant with death itself. That death seems to steal our certainty, to take uh, all of the promise of life from us. And so the picture of the Jews and their turn to ancestor worship is they've entered into this covenant with death. The promise of the human word, like Babel, like scholasticism, like philosophy, like nationalism, it's an empty promise. What we have then in scripture is the certainty and the promise of God. This is the writer of Hebrews, the way that he puts it. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, surely... I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Notice that the promise is specifically in regard to Abraham's name or his progeny. That is, Abraham's name will be established in and through his son. And Romans and Hebrews are going to describe this faith of Abraham as the prototype of Christian faith. It is resurrection faith. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. Yes, we do need something unchanging. The Greeks were right. But we do not establish this unchangingness through a human word. We cannot grasp this unchangingness through philosophy or science or psychology. That this unchanging word has been given to us in and through Christ Jesus. So that by two unchangeable things, the writer says, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. So the unchanging thing is not a thing at all. It is not the forms as the Greeks pictured it in the heavens. It is not a great tower as the Babylonians pictured it. It is not the greatest thought as Anselm would have it. It is not the cogito as Descartes would have it. It is the promise given and fulfilled in Christ Jesus. As the writer says, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Here is the thing that's grounded in the very holy of holies of God. We have the word of the prophets made more certain and sure. We will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. 2 Peter 1.19
I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. The certainty given to us in Christ is not on the basis of a human word or a human foundation, but the word given by God. The writer James puts it this way, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, for every good gift and perfect Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The promise is secured within God himself, behind the veil. Here is where we can have certainty and security. But the promise is not a disembodied promise. It's realized in the body of Christ. It's realized being joined, in fact, to the body of Christ. The passage in Paul, you know, from Romans 7 to Romans 8, from the body of death to the resurrection life in Christ, is a dissolution of the former reality that I think describes that reality, that pursuit of certainty in the midst of absence, loss, and death. This reality once stood at the center of our life. It constituted our own subjectivity in negation and uncertainty. Um, I won't stop and explain to you the whole philosophy of Ludwig Wittgenstein, but I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to at this point. But of course, this is the quest of of in modern philosophy the great turn is this man who found Christ I believe he he came to an understanding of who Christ is and he came to an understanding then of an alternative certainty his last book that he wrote is called On Certainty Uh, though he does not mention Christ in his book he does in his diaries and he comes to a realization of the resurrection of Christ. And simultaneous with that, he writes what I think is the bright and shining philosophical treatise of the 20th century, in which he pictures human certainty as not based on disembodiment, but as necessarily dealing with the realities of human embodiment. He says, when we first begin to believe anything, what we believe is not a single proposition. It is a whole system of propositions. Light dawns gradually over the whole. And I think what he's picturing is that we have an alternative worldview, an alternative body, an alternative foundation in the person and work of Christ. We can ask, you know, the philosophical questers who would, you know, the Kantian notion of the transcendental self. How can a transcendental self become a doer of the word and not a hearer only? And of course, that's the Gnostic problem that the New Testament is written to combat. That people would in some way imagine that being a Christian in this false understanding is something that they can do mentally that they can do simply in their spirit. And what the New Testament is saying, no, you have to walk as Jesus walked. You have to, in fact, put on the the person and work of Christ. 
The ground of our belief and understanding outside of Christ is no ground at all. But the ground of our belief in Christ is a a certainty that we have on the basis of the body of Christ. In Paul, the body of death pits the members of the body against the law of my mind. And this makes me a prisoner of the law at sin at work within my members. The body of death does its work as the body itself is split against the law of the mind. That is, Paul is picturing this antagonistic relationship. And I think here we've gotten to the heart that is simply manifested in a philosophical understanding. That disembodied quest is in fact a quest that we would each uh, take up within ourselves. You know, this is uh, Kant pictures the problem in, in modernity when he talks about, well, you've got a problem here, folks. You've got your thought and you've got the thing that's thinking. But actually, that's all that Paul said. He said, you've got a problem, folks. You're split within yourselves. You've got the law of the mind and you've got the law of the flesh and they're pitted against one another. The body per se is not the problem. But the flesh, mortality, death, and desire, they become an antagonistic force within this divided eye. Paul describes it as the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, and this results in the law of sin. So even our coming to self-consciousness, as Paul describes it, is a kind of refusal of the body or a kind of alienation between our minds and our bodies. So Descartes says, I think, for I, therefore I am. He doesn't say, I am embodied, or I love, and therefore I am. The word made flesh is impossible, I believe, in this understanding. The realm of language, the realm of the law, exists over and against our bodies. But in the incarnation, we have an enfleshed word made certain. And this is the certainty of the body of Christ. This is Paul's picture of baptism. It's a direct counter to our tendency to set one part of ourself over and against another part. Baptism intervenes in this alienation, in this body of death. And Paul uses a a Greek word here, sum futoi, the idea of being knit together with the body of Christ. We're joined to Christ. We're joined to one another in a new body. And we're baptized in his likeness. The Christian is united with Christ himself or his body. Where the subject of death has in fact joined herself to death, the subject of Christ has been joined to the ontological reality of God in the body of Christ. Baptism into his death is a real participation in the body of Christ and it inaugurates resurrection life a new form of living which in fact then brings the body and the mind together that's the picture in chapter 8 that we are enabled by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body and you are to walk as Christ walked therefore as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. 
just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. The language here is the language of certainty. Established, rooted. And he immediately appits this in uh, Colossians against the deception of philosophy. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So the conclusion is that the love of God has been made sure to us. That is the certainty that we have. And there is nothing more certain for us as Christians than this agape love that we have in the body, in the fellowship of Christ. This is our assurance. This is our certainty. It's not the certainty of a principle. It's not a formula. But it's the certainty of a promise that's been given by God. Of real presence. The presence of my brother on my right, my sister on my left. That God is there where two or three are gathered. And faith is the assurance then, as the writer of Hebrews says, of the things hoped for. It's the certainty of things not seen. The picture is that he's given us a body. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Here is true knowledge. Here is true certainty. The agape fellowship of the body of Christ. And when we turn, Paul says, when we turn from this certainty... We will be tossed about like a wave of the sea. As a result, we are no longer children to be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So I think that we can picture... History, the human search, is a quest for certainty. And of course the quest is carried out in separation and alienation and the reality of death is not addressed. In Christ we have the defeat of death, the overcoming of that absolute uncertainty has been then secured. We have a place that behind the veil Christ has secured uh, the certainty of his resurrection. It is a pursuit of presence, I think, outside of Christ in the midst of absence. It's a pursuit of life in the midst of death. But the love of Christ is a sure foundation from which we cannot be separated. And that's Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 8. Here is something from which you cannot be separated. Here is God's love made sure. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us 
from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing our hymn of it.